Dude, you know, uh, further shout out to uh, the kids ministry. You know, it, it's so fun to think when we started the church, we had uh, we had one kid, right? That was the children's ministry. We've gone through several cycles of baby booms since then as, uh, as these things happen. And now we're at a point where part of our our annual baptism service is baptizing kids who grew up here. And it's, it's amazing uh, just to be able to be at that point in the journey where we get to experience that. And kids that some of you taught when they were little, 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 and Sunday school, kids that you held when they were babies, we're now seeing them come to faith and baptized. And it's, uh, it's super fun. I love our lives. It's, uh, it's a great thing. Uh, hey, so this month, as, uh, as Tyson mentioned, this month we're, we're talking all about our mission priority for 2024, and that's outreach. Uh, we are, are really focusing as we go into this year, and we're doing some teaching on in these first few weeks of the year, uh, on what it looks like uh, for us amongst our friends and family and neighbors and community to embody and to speak the grace of Jesus Christ into the world around us. Uh, the grace that brings God's salvation, God's healing, God's justice. We want to carry that around in us as temples of the living God. And we want to speak in graceful ways of how good God is. So uh, we've, we've got this, this prayer I really want you to join me in. It's a little audacious, but whatever. Um, we're, we're praying in this year that, that we'd be able to baptize 10 folks this coming year. And uh, this last year we baptized five, it was marvelous. And uh, we've, we're just really blessed to be able to do that. And we want to pray that God will really meet us in that particular way this year. So uh, with that, I suspect this is true of you. It's true of me as well. Uh, There is probably, possibly, maybe in you some inner conflict around the whole topic of evangelism. Right? On the one hand, if, if you yourself are a follower of Christ, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, as the scriptures say, Uh, And if if you take Jesus at his word, that salvation and eternal life and forgiveness is found in him, then that is something that you want your friends and those that you love to experience as well. Uh, That's that's in you. That's part of this equation. Uh, But at the same time, on the other hand, there's a good chance that there's some awkwardness around that as well. Uh, You don't want to offend. You don't want to belittle anyone else's belief system. Uh, you, um, uh, you, you don't want to make your friendship with that person weird, right? You, you, uh, you, you how to put it, you, uh, you don't want to thump anyone with your Bible? Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. You, <laughs> there's, there's going to be a little bit of inner angst around this. And, and for those also, and even those here today who are exploring what a relationship with Jesus might look like, there's probably some inner conflict on this too. You know, on the one hand, you're no doubt appreciative of your friends who love you enough that they want to share Jesus with you. But on the other hand, you don't want to end up being somebody's project or you don't want this to define the friendship. So there's, there's some, some layers to this for sure. And this morning, as we talk about this, I, I want to read a text that will be familiar to some of you. It's been one of our kind of go-to texts over the years when we come to this topic. I, I think, uh, for my money, it's the most important text in the New Testament on evangelism. Uh, that is, for evangelism in a, a time and a place like ours. Think about it this way. Uh, so think about the complexity of what evangelism 
can look like. Think about the difficulty of the missionary task, if you will, of sharing the gospel in a place where it's often met with cynicism, where there's deep distrust over religious authorities, religious institutions. There's been a history of people seeing religious leaders abuse their authority, use that authority to line their own pockets. Uh, there's, there's some weirdness when it comes to religion in society. Uh, think, too, about the weirdness that results uh, when you, you have multiple religions that are existing side by side and the weirdness of a claim and of a God who makes this claim where Jesus says things repeatedly like, like you only come to the Father through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. And a claim like that sounds very exclusive, sounds uh, offensive to modern ears, maybe to our own ears, even if we're people who, who live in that truth, it comes a little awkward. Uh, to suggest that somebody else is wrong and that uh, as Christians we might be right about this is a difficult thing to espouse. Uh, one other area of weirdness is what's broadly called moral relativism. right? The idea that there is no objective standard of what is right and wrong, therefore each person is free to do what they want and to work out their own, mora uh, their own morality, their own system of ethics. And in that kind of environment, the worst sin of all is to suggest that somebody else is sinning. Right? That's an awkward place to bring the teachings of Jesus and this, this absolute command that he brings that if you are my follower, that you are to learn to obey my teachings, right? There's a complexity to this, there's an awkwardness to this, and by the way, that situation I'm describing, I hope it sounds familiar because that could very easily describe 21st century Los Angeles, but that is actually a description of the religious environment around the text that I'm going to read this morning. That is a description of what the first century Greco-Roman world was like in terms of the moral and religious landscape. And I share that because it's important for us, I think, to realize that the situation that we are in is not new. Right? It might feel new to us because of the point in history that we are, but it's exactly the situation of the first Christians that we read about in the New Testament. And more specifically, it, it kind of went like this. There's a shift that happens, and you see this especially in the book of Acts, where uh, Jesus' ministry is taking place in Israel, in and around Jerusalem and, and the surrounding environs, yes? And in that setting, uh, Jesus and then his followers after him, they're talking about what it means to follow Jesus with people who hold the same worldview. When you say God in that environment, everybody knows that you're talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's already agreement on that. When you talk about the system of ethics that Jesus calls his followers to live by, it is about 95% agreed upon by the population in which they're sharing. It feels in some ways in that setting like really all you're doing is you're inviting people to the very last step of believing that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah that Israel was waiting for. Now, you get about halfway through the book of Acts, and then you read through the New Testament letters, and what you discover is there's a significant shift. As the gospel goes out into the Greco-Roman world, none of that applies any longer. And instead, you have people bringing the gospel into a place where church is held with deep cynicism, where morality is relative, and where there's a, there's a pluralistic system of religions. I would suggest to you that we've undergone a similar shift in America over the last 75 years. Uh, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with the language of referring to America as a Christian nation. I think there's some problems in that. 
but uh, we have uh, enjoyed the gospel within a society that lives by a Judeo-Christian ethic, that subscribes, whether you're Christian or not, to a lot of the same undergirding beliefs about who God is, how we should live, etc., etc. And so for much of American history, evangelism meant bringing people that last step in the equation, receiving that Jesus is this promised Savior, and it fit with everything else that folks already believed. You with me so far? But in the shift that we've undergone over the last 75 years, it goes by a number of different names, but in the shift that has happened, we've moved to what's often called a post-Christian society. And it's, there's, there's a bit of disorientation, I think, for the church still, as we kind of are still even adjusting to this new reality and what does it look like to bear witness to Jesus in that context. Well, again, the good news is that this isn't new. I want to look at a text this morning that brings us to the Apostle Paul's counsel for a church that was living in a context much like ours in the Greco-Roman world of the first century. And his counsel, we're going to boil down to three words. I want you to hang on to these three words as we go through this text. Pray, act, and speak. Let's pray and we'll look at our text together. Lord God, we confess our awkwardness, our our inner conflict as we come to the topic of evangelism, the topic of outreach, of what it looks like. thank you, God, that we are not here by accident, that our our place in this moment is not an accident of history, but it is somehow orchestrated by your hand. We thank you too, God, that our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones, they are not here by accident either, that you are at work in the lives of every man and woman and child, everyone who you love, and it's your desire that all would come to know you. God, we pray that we might live into that truth more and more. Make us people who are humble and courageous, people who bear witness to your goodness with joy, with an ease, with a comfort. We pray, God, that you would teach us in normal and natural ways to bear witness to you in our everyday life. Lord, use this time together this morning as we worship. Use this text, our time of fellowship and communion and in every way that we worship. We pray, God that you would be at work, strengthening us, making us more like Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. So this is Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. It's a brief passage, but uh, full of goodness here. It starts like this. It says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now, pray. The key word in these first few verses, I'm sure you picked up on, it's it's repeated a lot, is pray. And in fact, in this brief passage, about two-thirds of the entirety of the instruction that's given is all about prayer and how to go about praying. And I don't think this is by accident, uh, by any stretch. 
I would assert for you and I, the most significant work that we do in outreach is to pray. There is nothing that you and I can do. There is no action. There is, there is no message we can give that is as powerful as simply praying for those around us. And the reason for this, we, uh, we talked about this uh, a bit last week, uh, but when, when we talk about conversion, a person coming to a saving faith in Christ, this is always the work of the Holy Spirit. The way Jesus put it is he says, nobody comes to me unless the Father draws him to me. Right? It is always the work of God. It's not something that you or I, as followers of Jesus, can force. It's not something that we can manufacture. It's not something that we can compel. It is always, from first to last, the work of the Holy Spirit. And how, friends, do we participate in the work of God's Spirit? Right? There's multiple ways. We talked about witness last week as one of those. But first and foremost, it is prayer. It is praying that God works in people's hearts. It's praying that God will create an opening in a person to be hungry for what God offers. It's praying that God would allow a heart to be open, that it would be receptive soil for his word to take root and to grow. It's praying, as Paul puts it in one place, it's praying uh, that, that Satan, that the God of this age, would not be able to blind the minds of those around us. It's praying for those around us. This is the first and the most important work that we do in this whole matter of bearing witness to Jesus. And look at what Paul says here about how we are to pray. Right? There's a number of descriptors that come into this. The first is he says, devote yourselves to prayer. Devote. In other words, he says, make it an ongoing practice. Make it something that isn't just haphazard, but something that you are leaning into. You are giving your whole self over to praying for those in your life who do not know the Lord. He says, be watchful and be thankful. He says, pray that God will open a door. Now, watchful, think about this. He's saying, pray in a way that's alert. You're praying here with eyes open, as it were. Think about it like this. If, if it is true, as we're asserting that it is, if it is true that salvation is the work of God, that the Holy Spirit is the primary mover on people's hearts, that he is already at work around us. If, to put it another way, if before you ever even think about praying for your neighbor or bearing witness of Jesus to that neighbor, God is already at work in that person's life, then part of our task becomes praying in a way where we're eyes wide open looking for where doors are opening. Looking for where God is at work and then joining God in that work. Uh, this, is, this is really important, friends. Don't miss this. Evangelism, bearing witness, it's not a situation where you are tasked with making something happen where nothing is happening. God is at work. Part of our task is watchful, alert prayer. Asking the question, God, where are you working? What are you doing? Um, uh, for me, uh, bear with me, this, this might sound goofy, but for me, as I'm trying to pray in this way, one of the things that I'm doing is I'm, I'm looking for something a little weird to happen. Right? I'm looking for a glitch in the matrix, for something that's kind of like, oh, that's, hmm, what's going on there? 
And perhaps that's a place where God is working. So a couple examples. So um, uh, some of you know this, but, but one of my hobbies, which has become one of kind of my main venues for outreach too, is I'm a, a CrossFit trainer. It's my hobby, right? That's a bizarre hobby, I know. But um, I'm, I'm a strange man. Anyway, so training people out of my house. This is, this is part of how I get to know my neighbors and make new friends and all this stuff and part of how God sometimes works. So uh, one time we were, we were praying for, I was praying for a new piece of equipment. I wanted a new rower to have in our, our garage gym, right? And uh, I'm praying for a rower. Doug laughs because he knows they're really expensive. So I'm, I'm praying for a good deal or something, right? And then I'm out running one day, and I run past a neighbor's house, and the garage is open this much. But it's just enough that I can see under the door that this neighbor has, has a Concept 2 rower in their garage, the, the Cadillac of rowing machines. And I'm like, yes, this is fabulous. So I go and I knock on the door. And I'm trying to be really nonchalant, right? I'm like, hey, I noticed you've, you've got this rower in your garage. I don't know if this is something you use or it, you know, it just kind of holds your laundry like most of our exercise equipment does. Uh, would you be interested in maybe selling this? And, uh, and the guy looks at me and he says, are you that CrossFit guy that lives down the street? He's <laughs> like, yes, I am. He says, can I come work out with you? I was like, yeah. You bring the rower? <laughs> he says, yeah. But anyway, that, that starts this relationship where over time, able to get to know this guy and, you know, we're becoming friends and I'm starting to pray for him for things that are happening in his life and uh, puts me in a position where I'm able to start bearing witness to Jesus in this particular relationship, right? I've had a handful like that. There's uh, another, uh, another guy who was, was a dad of one of the kids at school and, you know, he heard about what we're doing and he's like, can I join you? And so he starts and whatnot. And one day, you know, I open things up. He's the only guy that shows up, which is really weird. Usually there's six, seven people, and it's just him. And I'm like, hmm, well, this is odd. What's going on? And, and he didn't look good. And I was like, man, what, what's going on with you today? Is everything all right? And, and his hands are kind of shaking a little bit. And he says, actually, they're not. And just kind of lays out for me this really heavy situation that's going on in his life, right? And of course, it just so happens that that day, it's just he and I. And it just so happens that this occurs on this day when he gets, you know, after he gets this super heavy news. And, uh, and so we didn't work out that day. We just sat and we talked. And we prayed together and we talked about Jesus. Right? Just being watchful and prayerful. God, where are you moving? Where are you opening a door? Uh, I spend a lot of my working life in Starbucks. I don't work at Starbucks, but I, I work, I do work at Starbucks. Um, uh, and and it's, it's been my, uh, my custom over time, the, the workers there and the regulars, I'll just pray for them, right? Just to myself, they don't know I'm praying, but I'll, I'll pray for them, pray for God's work in their lives as I, as I sit there. And um, uh, there's this, this one gal that, that was there, she was there pretty much every day I was there, this, this young woman who's working there. And I didn't even know her name. I had never met her. But I just had this sense, I'm supposed to be praying for her. And I was praying for her every day that I was in there working. And then she got transferred or moved away or something. I didn't see her any longer. And I was like, hmm, okay. 
Six months later, I'm visiting one of the churches that we've planted out of this church. I'm visiting, and there she is sitting at that church. And I went up to her, and I was like, hey, I know you from Starbucks. And she's like, I know you from Starbucks. And I said, uh, what are you doing here? And she said, I don't really know. A friend invited me, and so I'm here. I said, you know, I prayed for you every day for like six months that God would be working in your life and that God would draw you to himself. Maybe these things are kind of connected. She's like, maybe they are kind of connected. Right. We pray watchfully, asking God, what are you doing? Where are you moving? And, and being alert and attentive and thankful. Paul says too, be thankful. Why can we be thankful? We can be thankful because it's not all about you and I. It's about the work that God is doing in the world. We don't have to create these situations. We don't have to go and awkwardly thump our neighbor with a Bible or whatever the case might be. God is at work. We can be grateful for that. And dare I say, we can relax a little bit and just pray. Ask God, what are you doing? How can I join you in the work that you are doing? Uh, the 19th century theologian Oswald Chambers, he wrote this. He said, prayer doesn't prepare us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Do you believe that? This is true. The most important thing, friends, the most important thing that you will do in outreach is to be a person who is devoted to prayer. Now hold that, because uh, we're going to have some homework for you at the, the end here as we're, we're talking application. But let's, let's move from there. That's number one is pray. Second is act. Pray and then act. Verse 5 says this, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Be wise, Paul says, in the way that you act. Friends, as you devote yourselves to praying, opportunities will come. Doors will be open. You can count on that. And when they do, you need to act in a way that is wise. Act in a way that is sensitive. Act in a way that is appropriate to the situation that you find yourself in. Uh, let's zoom out for a second. So in, in missions land, they have this $5 term, contextualization. right? And what this refers to is is bringing the gospel into a particular culture in a way that makes sense for that culture. If the word sounds familiar, it's because it's, it's on our vision and value statement. You find this on the back of our bulletin. Right? We try to keep this in mind, uh, that the gospel does not exist in a vacuum. It's always embodied in a particular culture. The message does not change, but the container in which it comes sometimes does. And you see that even in the New Testament as the gospel moves from a Jewish environment to a Gentile environment. Paul talks about this in his own life. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says something along the lines of this. He says, uh, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to reach the Jews. To the Gentiles, I became like a Gentile to reach the Gentiles. He says, I have become all things to all people so that by, some, uh, by, by all possible means, I might reach some. Right? That's, that's contextualization. He is being wise in the way that he acts towards outsiders, those who are outside of the faith, outside of the church. Now, what might that look like for you and I? Uh, 
much of the way that evangelism has been practiced in America through the years. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, uh, much of it assumed sort of a Jerusalem environment, right, where evangelism was all about that last step. So if you meet somebody you've never met before in the park and you bring with you a, a four spiritual laws tract and you explain to them that Jesus is the Messiah, that would be considered evangelism if you're at that very last step. In fact, for much of our history, that sort of evangelism, I think, made a lot of sense. It was good contextualization. I'm not sure that it is anymore. I'm not sure in a post-Christian environment where a, a longer process is needed for most people, that that's always the, the best way to go about bearing witness to Christ. Uh, I, do, I don't want to be too harsh here. I, I do think there's a time and a place for most every sort of witness. But I think we do well to think, think hard about what does it look like to act wisely towards outsiders in our setting, in our time. Uh, Maybe two possibilities of ways we can think about that. Uh, two ways that, um, that I find helpful. I know some of you do also. But one is just to ask the question, what do you like to do? And then to invite people into that. The biblical word for this is hospitality. Right? Hospitality is not just making somebody a meal, although that's a wonderful form of hospitality. God bless the meal makers. But... To invite people into our lives, into our space. And sometimes our interests are a great way to do this. So it's worth asking yourself, well, what do I do that I might invite uh, a curious friend or neighbor into? Right? Maybe you, you're a walker. Right? You like to walk around the park. Can you bring somebody with you in that? Maybe you're really into movies. Right? Is that something that you can invite friends or neighbors into? Maybe it's a fitness situation like mine. That's an easy spot for me to invite others into. Maybe you're a foodie, right? Invite people into your foodiness. Invite me into your foodiness. Invite people into that, yes? Whatever the case might be. Maybe you're into craft beer. That's a great place to connect with. Uh, whatever it is. But where are the places in my life where I can extend hospitality to others? Where when God is opening a door, where there is an opportunity, I can use that wisely and lean deeper into this friendship and see what God will do with this. Right? Another way to think about this is in kind of the how and when of when we might invite people to participate in church, to explore further. And if, if uh, think about it this way. Say you are, you're in prayer and, and you're devoted to this and God is trying to show you in your life or maybe there's people who have some interest in Jesus and what's going on there. Ask yourself the question, well, what would be the best next step for that person? And uh, in our church, we talk about us having three doors into the church. Three doors. Uh, Sundays is one of those, right? And if your friend is in a place where they, they're curious about Christianity, they want to hear it explained, they want to hear it taught, you think maybe they'd connect with the musical experience that happens here, whatever the case might be, then this would be a good thing to invite your friend and say, hey, our church meets Sundays at 10 a.m., do you want to come with me sometime? Right Now, on the flip side, uh, perhaps the person in your life would rather be set on fire than to darken the doors of a church. If that is the case, don't invite them. That's bad evangelism. Right? Be wise in the way that you act 
towards outsiders. That's not a good invite. Or if you make the invite and that's the response, is I'd rather set myself on fire, then you can let it go at that point. You don't need to persist. But that's, that's just one door into the church. Uh, for others, a small group might be the, the door that makes more sense. Maybe your friend is in a place where they really want to be able to dialogue about these things and ask their questions and uh, receive teaching, but maybe in a way that's more interactive. Maybe there's a hunger in them for community and they're wanting to connect with other people. Then your small group might be the best place for you to start. Or alternately, just to, to form one with them and be like, hey, would you be interested in maybe getting together and reading the Bible, talking about these things more? That might be the best venue. Door number three is ministries of compassion and justice. Uh, and uh, you, know, you, you might have a friend who has no interest in attending church and no interest in your small group, uh, but maybe they're in a place where they do care about making a difference in the world. Maybe they're starting to sense that their life needs to be about more than just going to work and making money and someday retiring, that they want to somehow contribute. Well it might be a great opportunity to invite them to help us in the work that we're starting up with the villages or maybe uh, to help us in our work with Mozambique, right? Pre-pandemic, I would have said to you, bring them with to the homeless dinners. It's a great place for people to start to connect. And historically, uh, just kind of a historical FYI in our church, about 60% of folks who have found their way into this church has been through Sunday mornings. The remaining 40% is split, split pretty even between small groups and ministries of compassion. It's three different doors into the church. Be wise in how you think about this. How am I able to connect my friend who might be curious uh, with this body of believers here? Oh, I didn't even mention Super Bowl and Pigs on Fire and all those things, which Lord willing will be <laughs> happening again this year. Stay posted. But... Uh, so that's two. One is pray, two is act. Let's look at one more. Let's speak. Verse six. It says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So finally, speak. We pray, we act, and then speak. And it's so interesting to me the way that Paul talks about this. Right? It's more than just kind of throw it out there and let the chips fall where they may. It's let your conversation be full of grace. There's a sensitivity, there's a winsomeness to the way that we are to talk about Jesus. Speak in a way that imparts the grace of Jesus Christ to those around us. Right? This isn't grab a bullhorn and just start yelling. This isn't hit people over the head with your message. There's a sensitivity in this that I really appreciate. It's to be full of grace. There's something, something gentle about it. And uh, further here, it says, uh, you know, let your conversation be seasoned with salt. So what does salt do? Right? It provides flavor, of course. But in, in this context, I, I, think, I think maybe this is getting at one of the other functions of salt. Salt creates thirst. And I, I tie this with this next line, so, where he says, uh, so that you'll know how to give an answer to everyone. Giving an answer implies that somebody's asking a question, right? There's a saltiness to the way that we speak about Jesus. There's a quality to it that leaves people wanting to hear more, not wishing that they were hearing less. Uh, how do we do this? How do we speak in this way? 
there's two things that come to mind here. One is what we talked about last week, and that's, that's witness. Uh, it's taking a posture where we don't think our primary task is to, uh, to convince others necessarily. It's just to share our story. It's just to bear witness to what Jesus has done in our lives and what he is doing in our lives. There's something very, very compelling about story, especially in the context of a friendship. It's very non-threatening. It's just, it's just saying this is who I've experienced God to be in my life. Uh, another practice along with that is just learning to ask questions, right? Rather than being overly concerned with what we're going to say, just asking questions and then shutting up and listening, right? Asking people questions like, what do you think about God? Have you ever read the Bible? What do you think about the Bible? And listening. I, I love asking the question, uh, asking, has there ever been a time when you felt like God was kind of pursuing you, when you feel like God was, was trying to get through to you somehow. And I'm amazed how I'd say about 90% of the people I've ever asked that question to say yes, including those who moments ago were telling me they don't believe in God, right? About 90% have said to me, you know what? Actually, yeah, there was this time I was in this car accident. I should have died, da-da-da. And, and I mean, almost everybody has a story of where, yeah, I did kind of think that. You know, and, and this creates a space for conversation around that. Where I can say, you know, I've, I've had those times too. Um, do you want to hear about mine? And to talk about how God ended up invading my life, right? But learn to ask questions. Uh, I want to, um, uh, I want to give you a, an assignment. Uh, not just for this week, but it's, a, it's an assignment for the year. On the seat, either under you or around you, there's these cards, and there's some spaces on there for you to write down the names of people that maybe God has put in your life. As we're thinking about this, sort of the, the pray, act, and speak, um, I'm going to, don't do it just yet, but I'm going to invite you to, to take a minute and to do some thinking on this and praying on this. But maybe by way of encouragement, um, this is a practice that we've, we've done off and on in this church for years and years. Uh, here's a fun story uh, that kind of connects to these. Uh, a, a good number of the people that we've seen come to faith and be baptized in this church, their first connection with this church was actually having their names on one of these cards. They were someone that somebody in this body of believers was praying for, right? And, um, and often they have stories of how others were praying for them too, but, uh, but many... Many started here. Here's, here's a story. Some of you know our friend Deanne Funk. Years ago, she started praying for a friend at work named Anne. And Anne had a Christian background, but had been uh, not too actively engaged in the church in a while. And uh, Deanne started praying for her. And she started attending church here uh, not too long after. She brought her husband, Simon, with her. Simon, who is a self-professed agnostic and who, uh, who enjoys telling me that, uh, that he didn't really want to come, but it was easier to come than to have the fight over not coming. So. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I remember him saying to me at one point, you know, I, I always thought Christians were idiots, but I came here and I kept meeting all these people that are, who are smart, like doctors and engineers and teachers, and he says, and people were kind, and they were authentic. And he, 
he kept showing up. Uh, at some point, Simon and I started uh, studying the Bible together and talking about what it might look like to follow Christ. Meanwhile, as this is going on, uh, I'd been praying for a guy at Starbucks, my little Starbucks thing. I'd been praying for this guy, Brandon, that worked at Starbucks. And, uh, and Brandon, he, would, he liked me for some reason. And so on his smoke breaks, he'd be like, hey, you want to come and smoke? And I'd be like, sure. But he was the only one who smoked. Um, <laughs> but I would come and sit with him, right? And we would talk about stuff. And, um, and he, he liked making sure that I, I knew that belief in God was ridiculous. And he didn't believe in any of this and da-da-da. One day, though, Brandon comes up to me and, and he says, hey, uh, I need you to, to pray for my friend Eli. And I said, okay. He said, you do know you don't believe in prayer, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know. But my friend Eli just really needs, needs prayer. So I said, okay, I can do that. And he says, he's outside. So I was like, oh, okay. So I went and, and sat down with, uh, with Eli. And Eli, he described himself as a, a transgendered Buddhist pluralist. That was his, his identification for self. And, um, but he had some issues going on and he wanted to pray. And so I prayed for him. Uh, we began hanging out a little bit, and we started reading the Bible together, too. Uh, in, in the process of that, Eli comes to a place where he puts his faith in Jesus. And then he says to me, you know what? We really need to start praying for Brandon. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, let's, let's do that. Let's pray for Brandon. And we did. And after a while, Brandon started meeting with us to read the Bible, too. Uh, now, Simon gets looped into the situation somewhere in here, too, and I've got Brandon and Simon reading the Bible together with me also. And Brandon comes to faith, and Brandon pulls me aside one day and says, you know, we really should pray for Simon. <laughs> well, uh, not too long after, Simon comes to faith as well. And uh, uh, one last maybe fun step in the story, some of you remember... Uh, Remember Ryan Grassy, who we baptized here a few years ago prior to his move to Texas. Uh, but Ryan was part of a, a small group that was reading the Bible together too, exploring the faith. This was not long after Simon came to faith. And Simon shows up and, uh, and announces to the group, he says, hey, I just recently became a Christian myself. But I wanted to come tonight just to be here with you and to pray for you and let you know if you have any questions or if there's any way I can help. I want to be part of that too. We pray, we act, we speak. The first work is prayer. Here's what I want you to do, friends. So you've got these cards around you here. Uh, take one of these, or even better, if, uh, if there's enough near you, take two. Uh, and we're going to take a couple minutes, and I want you to, to put on there the names of anyone that's in your life that you think maybe God would have me pray for. Uh, write the same thing on card number two, and if you want, you can drop that in one of the offering baskets. And our vision team, our prayer team, will join you in praying for those people on your list this year. Uh, but fill this thing out, and then I, I want you to put it in a place where you're going to see it every day, where you can practice being devoted in prayer. So put it on the bathroom mirror, put it on your speedometer. You're not paying attention to the speed anyway. Just put it, <laughs> put it over those numbers. Uh, put it somewhere where you're going to see it. And we're on the regular. You will be praying for those folks in your life. Let me, uh, let me pray for you. 
as you do this, and then we're going to give you a couple minutes here before we, we move to communion to fill those out. So let me pray.